Hello and welcome to the BLS Report. The BLS Report is produced by the Business Law Section of the Law Council of Australia to honour our friend and mentor, the late Bob Baxt, AO. I'm Pamela Hanrahan from the UNSW Business School and I'm joined by my regular co-host and fellow member of the BLS executive, John Keeves. John, of course, is a partner at Johnson, Winter and Slattery. Hello, John. Hi, Pamela. Uh, great to be here again. This is our 11th episode, so we're very excited to talk about a really topical issue that's relevant for many lawyers who practice in business law, and that is legal professional privilege. There have been some significant developments in LPP over the course of 2022, and we just thought it was timely to look at them from the perspective of practitioners and clients who are maybe not as actively engaged day to day on issues on the litigation side. Of course, we've had claims of LPP in issue in the Star Casino inquiry recently here in New South Wales. So we will watch with interest where that discussion goes. Uh, for now though, John, I think um, we might leave Star aside and look at three perhaps more practical things of general application uh, that uh, we should consider. So the most important thing that we want to talk about is the development of the recent protocol by the Australian Taxation Office on LPP claims. Obviously, that's important for tax practitioners, but we also think it's important in understanding how future thinking might evolve at other Commonwealth regulators, including ASIC and the ACCC. So I think what's happened at the ATO will be of interest not just to tax lawyers, but also to those people who have to deal with Commonwealth agencies. We might also mention at the end just two recent developments in the case law that are very relevant for people who are advising companies and their directors. Um, the first one is interaction between LPP and a director's right of access to company books. That was the subject of an interesting decision in 2021 called Key Eyewear. And the second is uh, the case of Terracom, where a listed company lost privilege in a forensic report that it commissioned uh, by mentioning the findings of that report in an ASX release. So that's still um, ongoing at the moment. So we might come to those at the end. But John, let's uh, first turn to this new protocol at the ATO. And would you like to introduce our special guest for this episode? Uh, thanks, Pamela. Indeed, I would. We are very pleased to have Clint Harding with us. Uh, Clint's a partner at Arnold Block Liebler and uh, an expert tax, tax practitioner. He leads the firm's Sydney tax practice. He's had uh, 20 years' experience in taxation across three jurisdictions. And Clint has had extensive experience in income tax issues associated with M&A, um, investments, international finance structures, trust taxation, thrilling, and managing uh, audits and disputes with the ATO, which is uh, pretty relevant uh, for today's purposes. Uh, welcome aboard, Clint. Hi, both, and thanks for having me on on a, on a topic that is uh, particularly close to my heart at the moment. And I should have also mentioned that Clint is uh, also a member of the, the BLS executive uh, for his sins. 
Sure, and uh, relevant to our discussion today, I happen to be chairman of the BLS Tax Committee uh, at the point in time when the ATO first started expressing uh, particular interest in uh, privilege claims and, and issues surrounding that. So that, that was uh, sort of the, the start of my journey um, in, in some of this some of the issues we're talking about today. So Clint's definitely the, the guru on this particular issue. Yes, great. So Clint, I think we might just assume that there are lots of people listening into the podcast who might not be aware of the ATO protocol and where it came from. So would you mind just taking us through the evolution and what the ATO is trying to achieve here? Sure. So we started the process with the tax officer. I mean, at the outset, we should note that privilege disputes aren't new. Uh, they've been around for a long time. There's been various investigations and reports on privilege. Uh, even the Law Council's put a lot of submissions in uh, to Australian Law Reform Commission reports on privilege as well. So there has always been a balancing act between the rights of an administrator or regulator such as the ATO to access documents and information using their um, statutory information gathering powers and balancing that with the rights of uh, taxpayers and citizens to uh, have privilege attached to their legal advice. So that that's always something that has been in flux. What I guess served as the genesis for this protocol uh, and the development of that and the consultation that we did over probably a three year period with the tax office was uh, back in November 2018, the tax office raised some of the concerns they were seeing in practice with uh, information requests they were putting out there and the responses to those. Uh, some of their key concerns were that um, they had received or they received claims of privilege over documents that they thought could never clearly meet the dominant purpose test. So the dominant purpose of giving legal advice that on the face of the information they were able to receive um, clearly could never be met. Uh, they were concerned with claims made on the assumption that all documents simply where a lawyer is copied on the communication attract privilege. Uh, they had seen uh, engagements conducted by non-lawyers um, with given the primary role of a lawyer to rubber stamp what was being produced. Uh, and sometimes it's referred to as cloaking that document with privilege. Uh, and that leads on to sort of some of their other concerns, which were around with the actual processing of reviewing documents for LPP, concerns with um, the junior status of people reviewing them, concern that there wasn't actually a human set of eyes being run over a document before claiming privilege, um, a proper concerns with the proper understanding of the engagement and the scope of that engagement and whether that actually gave rise to the right legal relationship in order to attract privilege. Uh, and so those sort of things all boiled down to a discontent and some very public comments that were made by the commissioner and, and the media around uh, lawyers, um, I guess for want of a better word, abusing privilege uh, in terms of their interactions with, with the tax office. Thanks, Clint. Can I just unpack a little bit of that for the non-litigators amongst us? So the client is allowed to withhold from the tax office documents to which legal professional privilege properly attaches, right? Yep. So so 
really, their two big gripes were blanket claims for privilege. So when when the tax office puts out an information request, and you're seeing this replicated a lot, a lot of the commissions and inquiries that are putting out requests for large amounts of information and giving very short times to turn around that. So there has always been a dialogue with the tax office, and that um, you you can directly impact on the quality of the privilege claims you get by having regard to how you phrase your information requests but effectively the ATA puts out an information request the client goes away and potentially scopes how many documents or communications that covers and one of the gripes is that that may result in what they call blanket claims for privilege so in absence of each document having been reviewed there'll be a claim that 10,000 documents are, are, are subject to privilege uh, and that's particularly problematic and what the protocol is about is that it's a voluntary document where the ATO is setting out what the commissioner expects or would like um, the process to be in order to give them, the, so the taxpayer should identify those documents, then they should give, from the commissioner's perspective, enough information about those documents so that the tax office can decide whether or not to accept or challenge that claim for privilege. Uh, it's all about the tax office having enough information to make an informed decision um, and then that butts up against, obviously, the ultimate arbiter of, of privileges, the court. It's not for the tax office. And the tax office acknowledges this in the document. They say that they're not tasked with the sole purpose of determining whether or not a document is privileged. Uh, that's for the court. But they need enough information to ascertain whether or not to challenge a claim for privilege. Yes, I see. And the issue is that sometimes these information requests can potentially attach to tens or hundreds of thousands of documents, right? Yep, that's correct. Um, especially when you're talking with large taxpayers, multinationals, um, different jurisdictions. Um, and, um, and and part of the protocol sets out uh, the tax officer's views on that. And you've got to remember that every document is as a separate document over which you claim. If you forward an email, that is a separate document to the original email that privilege has to be claimed over. So you can only imagine in this day of electronic communications on large transactions for large taxpayers, the, the amount of people that get copied on emails, uh, the amount of emails that are forwarded, each of those create a new document over which privilege must be claimed uh, and which the ATO is seeking the requisite particulars to understand whether or not they should challenge that. And does the ATO accept that uh, this sort of document production process has to be kind of done electronically and uh, the, you know, using technology or? Yes, they do. I mean, I think that there's a second bit of work that we will work on with the tax officers around what can be done to give both sides confidence around using computer-assisted technology to, to run those. And at what point in time do you, is it reasonable to expect a, a set of eyes to be put onto a document to actually provide that final review. I don't think, I haven't heard anyone express the view that it can be done purely by AI or computer assisted processes and get to the right result. I think it's about narrowing that and as with all things communicating on search terms and, and things like that uh, and whether or not there's a, a process that can be agreed on that. The, the second issue the taxpayer had and it's relevant particularly to in-house counsel was around the, the nature of the engagement and who was giving the advice. Uh, and what they want is, is not only to analyse each actual communication to see whether it's privileged, but to analyse the, the nature of the legal engagement and service that gave rise to that to see whether or not it is legal advice. And in particular, a lot of the 
extra work in the protocol was aimed at multidisciplinary practices, so something other than a pure legal practice, in particular the big four where the ATO had seen practices of, as I said before, involving a legal practitioner in, in the mix who wasn't actually giving the, the advice but was copied on everything and his name may have been on the letter. So by big four, you mean the big four tax or accounting practices? Yes, yeah, sorry, the big big four accounting firms, so KPMG, PwC, EY um, and Deloitte, um, who, who give tax advice, right? And so there's a, there's a, there's a natural line between, uh, and the commissioner has separate, uh, it's not privilege, but there is something called the accountant's concession, which is an administrative practice of the tax office that they, they can afford to um, advice given by accountants, but obviously it's not um, as good as legal professional privilege. So that's where a lot of the focus in this protocol was was on. And, and Clint, this is all about the compulsory production of documents under notices, you know, with, with, with penalties if there's a failure to comply with a notice. Correct. And presumably the burden of proof lies on the person producing the documents to establish privilege? That's correct. So the onus of proof is always on the taxpayer and, and their advisors to establish that a document is privileged and it is up to the court as arbiter to determine that. And so that's where you'll see, uh, if anyone's interested, there was a recent case with PwC involved that sort of tests some of these points around the nature of the engagement and whether or not documents are privileged. Uh, and in that case, it was to do with a client of PwC's that was, I, th I think it was JBS, the, the meat processing um, uh, group around an audit, uh, the commissioner had issued an, a, a statutory notice to PwC to provide uh, certain documents that it wanted reg regarding uh, transactions or an audit. Uh, and I think PwC in that case claimed privilege over, it was, it was over 15,000 documents that were withheld from producing to the commissioner. Uh, and the commissioner then uh, sought a declaration from the court that those documents weren't covered um, on the basis they weren't prepared for the dominant purpose of giving legal advice. Um, and I, I guess to bear out some of the commissioner's concerns was that when the court actually undertook, it only did a sample, obviously the court didn't review all 15,000 documents. I think it reviewed about 110 or just over 110. And I think it was only about 40%, I think it was 42% of those documents that it reviewed in the sample it found to be privileged. So that's pretty concerning, I guess, and and gives some support to why I think we're seeing an increased focus uh, by the tax office and other regulators on the use of privilege in, in this context uh, and why they are interested in, in having more information that enables them to determine whether or not to challenge a claim. That's a good segue into the next question, which is, in the development of the protocol, what were the contentious issues between the profession and the tax office? So, I mean, it's interesting. It was a long process. It was a journey, uh, and and it was great. The tax office was 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 very open, and and we, in terms of our working group, and and uh, we spent quite a lot of time uh, d discussing points. The, the, I, I think I would summarise the two main issues of contention. One would be underlining voluntary basis of it because uh, our concern was that once this is out there then someone reads it and just thinks that's what they have to do um, that it is a, a voluntary document I've I've had views expressed to me that if a document is privileged you don't even have to tell 
the ATO that it exists. It just is by its nature privileged and disclosed. You're not required to even disclose the existence of that document. So there's a variety of views out there ranging to those who are pretty comfortable with giving the ATO all the information they were seeking. So, but the contentious area was one, the voluntary nature of the protocol, which is absolutely correct. And second, most of the time was spent around the nature of the information the ATO sought uh, about the privileged communication in order to ascertain whether or not it was privileged. So the types of things they were asking for, ranging from the date, who gave the advice, uh, the particularly contentious one was the their request to understand the subject or title of the communication in question. Uh, and so that was a big, that engendered a large debate around waiver. Uh, and one of the key points that the Law Council and the Tax Committee were keen to make was that legal practitioners need to understand that privilege is always something that belongs to the client. It's not yours to waive. Uh, and there are serious consequences to any practitioner if they waive a client's privilege without instructions to do so. So it was about that balance of giving the ATO the information they want and making sure that you're comfortable that whether or not that is a waiver. And that's still an open issue in terms of some of that stuff. There's still a variety of views as to whether or not providing the ATO with a title or a subject line is enough to amount to waiver of privilege over that document. Now, the ATO dealt with that in part by saying, if you do that, we're not going to maintain that you waived privilege, which is some relief. But obviously, there's a number of ways that we've seen decisions also with Glencore that if they have information is an interesting part with regulators that they're actually required to use it. So um, there's some interesting issues around that and also sharing of information with other regulatory authorities. So the fact that the tax office might undertake not to raise an argument that you've waived privilege may not mean much down the track if someone else gets that information through other means. In, in other contexts uh, where you have that sort of argument about waiver, the fact that the regulator doesn't take the point, doesn't stop a class action claimant from having a go. But that's something we, we might uh, touch on a bit later. Yeah. And, and then the third point of controversy really in, in the development was just walking. The ATO wanted to go reasonably hard with, with some messaging around um, recklessly claiming privilege and what that might mean in terms of... Um, uh, sanctions and um, I guess punishments that might be uh, might follow that sort of behaviour with legal practitioners and we were very clear to say look that's that's the remit of the law societies because obviously the ATO has issues with reporting that behaviour because the secrecy provisions and they're very restricted in terms of what they can say uh, about anything they come across so I guess they're keen to try and get some messaging out and that's why it's important for the law council to assist with through podcasts like this excellent production and um, other guidance that we we're working on to sort of help practitioners understand what privilege is and importantly understand what their obligations are with regard to that and make sure they don't um, do anything they shouldn't. Clint is the law council going to be publishing anything in that regard? Yeah, so, so both the BLS is working with the, the Law Council and obviously some of the other committees around some, some guidance around that um, and hopefully we can, we can push that through and there'll be something available for everyone to, to have a look at, uh, hopefully by the end of the year. Great. Clint, if I may, I'll just summarise those three excellent points that you made. So the ATO protocol 
is really directed at getting the person who's claiming the privilege to describe the documents over which they're making that claim so that the ATO can think about whether it wants to challenge it or not. And you've said that there are three kind of areas of contention that you had to work through with the ATO. The first is that voluntary nature of um, the protocol so that you can maybe choose not to follow it. Um, the second one is whether by that description you run a risk of um, waiving the privilege for the client, which is theirs to waive, not yours. And the third was whether, as regulatory agencies sometimes do, and I think John will say something about ASIC in a minute, um, so a bit of chest beating about solicitors who make what regulatory agencies think are ambit claims or unreasonable delaying, stalling tactics, whether there ought to be some kind of consequence for for asserting privilege where it's not reasonable to do so. Are they, is that a fair summary of sort of where we landed? Yeah, the only thing I'd add to that is is the first point around giving, or the second point about giving them enough information about the, the document itself and able to assess it. It's not just about the document, but it's about that engagement and the nature of the relationship so that they can assure themselves that, that it is legal advice. So that's particularly relevant to in-house counsel and the number of different hats that in-house counsel can wear and also for practitioners in, in multidisciplinary practices or accounting firms that might be legal practitioners. This is the BLS report. I'm Pamela Hanrahan and we're discussing legal professional privilege with John Keeves and Clint Harding. John, um, Clint's taken us through the recent developments at the ATO. Are we seeing similar concern or action around LPP from other Commonwealth agencies like the ACCC or ASIC? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that we are. We've uh, The ACCC published um, some materials earlier in the year, although their, their website quite craftily doesn't actually have a, a date stamp on the, on the update. Uh, but uh, certainly a couple of months ago, the OCCC published some some, uh, some additional what you might call guidance on uh, LPP. And I have to say, it, it probably lines up with the, um, uh, with, with the ATO protocol in, in general terms in the sense of seeking on a voluntary basis, they say, um, uh, additional information or information at least about uh, to assist the ACCC in uh, assessing uh, LPP claims. Um, they do make it clear that it's voluntary, but of course, um, as we said before, it's the, these, are, these, these are statutory notices requiring production and the burden of proof is on the, um, on, on the person making production. So having to uh, sort of spell it out uh, to the regulator to persuade them not to, uh, to pursue action uh, does, I guess, make sense. Um, I, I think this issue that Clint mentioned about sort of implied waiver, which we might talk about a little bit more later, is, it also remains relevant there. ASIC, on the other hand, despite some what you might call noises a couple of years ago by one of the uh, the, the ASIC commissioners uh, about concerns about how LPP might have been used uh, in uh, in relation to um, investigations and litigation that ASIC was involved with, they haven't really published anything formally since 2012, so 10 years ago. Uh, but what they did publish, which was uh, Information Sheet 165, uh, I think is all, is all pretty consistent in terms of, of the... Um, of the approach, although I, that they do have in that uh, in that uh, publication a kind of a non-disclosure agreement, uh, which would allow people to disclose legally privileged material to ASIC under confidential terms. Um, 
but for the for, as I mentioned before, that that might that that might be okay vis a vis ASIC, but not against uh, third parties who might uh, want to bring uh, claims for uh, for a similar subject matter. So yeah, I think it's broadly consistent. I think that we, we can say that uh, um, that the whole issue of, of uh, LPP, or should I say, possible as I think Clint said, abuse of LPP, or what might be regarded as some bogus claims, um, are are um, something that the uh, the Commonwealth regulators are, are certainly uh, very much alive to. And there are, there are you know there there are definitely two sides to this uh, two sides to this story because um, if you're a regulator and you're told uh, you can't have this document because it's privileged, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. Uh, that does put the put the regulator in a, a pretty pretty difficult position uh, because they obviously can't make any assessment of that claim for privilege. So I understand where they're coming from in that respect, but equally, um, legal professional privilege is a, a very important. Um, whilst it's a kind of a, if you like, a procedural right, it's very important from the point of view of the citizen to be able to get that, uh, you know, ad- advice, uh, legal advice without without fear of. Uh, what they tell their advisor being disclosed. So it's really important that that's preserved, and that's I think that's certainly recognised by the court. Can be abrogated by statute where it's where it's where it's clear. But that sort of if you if you like that um, fairly fundamental common law right is uh, is is pretty important to uh, to the way the uh, way the system works. Yeah, I think that's right, John. Um, you're being very polite about the ASIC uh, dispute. I think the then deputy chair of ASIC in 2019 gave a media interview where there was a fair bit of chest bumping about people ought to just agree with what we say and settle and not drag things out and spend money. And um, I know that the then president of the Law Council came out pretty strongly in response to that and made exactly the point that you made and indeed that the High Court made in Glencore, which is, yes, there's a public interest in these documents being available, but there's a, a stronger public interest in people being able to get legal advice when they need it and to be able to keep that legal advice up confidential in appropriate circumstances. So I've got a final question for you both, and that's for all the uh, practitioners in the room. Um, what do we need? What are the takeaways? What do we need to be really careful of when we're handling that privilege that belongs to the client? What are the kind of top three um, Risks for young players. Oh, the, 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 I'll give you the top three: waiver, waiver, and waiver. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, John's right. That's the the top one, is and, and making sure you don't waive it without instructions to waive it, because uh, it's not your privilege; it belongs to your client. That's certainly something that everyone needs to be aware of. But I think it also has reinforced to me the responsibility on legal practitioners practitioners to actually understand what privilege is. Um, it was a, a steep learning curve for me through the, the development of the protocol. I mean, I thought I knew a bit about privilege, but I was blessed to have a, a, a working group of real deep experts on privilege. And you can go down a lot of wormholes, but I think at the very minimum, people should remind themselves what privilege is and when it's appropriate to claim it. Uh, because it, it doesn't help the, either the profession or anyone to have instances out there where there's just uh, no basis for a claim that's being made. Um, so I, I think there's, there's, those are the two main priorities for me as waiver and making sure you've got a basic understanding of what, what privilege is and, and when it applies. 
I t- totally agree. If I can just sort of add that, uh, making sure that uh, our, our clients understand waiver and particularly the implied waiver that uh, uh, that. Pamela, you wrote a wonderful article in the uh, uh, Company Director magazine about the Terracom case and about what you might call accidental waiver when someone, uh, when a company made reference to a to a, a report in an ASX announcement and puff, there goes legal privilege in relation to, to that to that report, uh, and that that is definitely a sort of a trap for uh, trap for the inexperienced player. Thanks, John, for that kind comment about the column. The Terracom case was interesting. So there was a dispute internally at the company and the company um, commissioned a report in connection with that dispute about what had happened or not happened and then came out and made an ASX announcement in response to some media speculation about that dispute where they said effectively... We've had legal advice and the legal advice has concluded X. (laughs) And the uh, case is on appeal on a different point, but the kind of key takeaway, I think, for companies and company directors was just to remind them that if you disclose the gist of the advice or the conclusion of the advice, then you waive the privilege over the whole of the advice. Um, And so you need to be really careful and I, I'm absolutely sure that this that proposition is not well understood by sort of a, a broad number of company directors and other officers out there in the in the real world. Very true. Now there was one other case that I said at the beginning that we might mention um, just while we're talking about company directors, and that was the 2021 decision in a case called Hammond and Key Eyewear, um, and John. We thought as corporate law practitioners that that was interesting because it was about the tension between um, the company's privilege in respect of some advice that had had got and the company director's right of access to books and records of the company. The dispute was over whether a director that was fighting with the company uh, could use their right of access over company books and records to see the advice that the company was receiving about that dispute. Um, unsurprisingly, the privilege, company's privilege overrode the director's right of access. But I think it's a really helpful judgment. Um, Justice Banks-Smith really explains privilege in that corporate context. And so it's definitely worth a look for people who haven't seen it. Absolutely, and and I, I think the one, one thing that that comes out of it is that 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 so-called right of access is much more a power to get access, and uh, is subject to those kind of principles that analogous to fraud on a power. It's got to be used for the for, or exercised for the proper purpose uh, rather than for the director's own interests, and then then it kind of all makes sense. And clearly, where where the director's interests and those of the company are are at odds, it would be at least. So sort of incomprehensible to me that the director ought to have access to privileged material when they were sort of in litigation with the company. That'd be bizarre. So it's a bit, obviously a fairly sensible decision from a common sense viewpoint as well. Clint, a lot of us are, uh, you know deal a lot with in-house legal counsel, advise in-house legal counsel, and and there are definitely in-house legal counsel who are members of the BLS and maybe listening. Is there one sort of key takeaway point for for the uh, the in-house people and those who advise them? Yeah, that's that's a good question, John, because there are sort of additional considerations, as I said, going back to my comments around understanding the, the relationships involved and the fact that the ATO want to understand 
about the function, the position, the role, and the responsibilities of the people that are preparing those communications and documents. So I, I think in a lot of sophisticated taxpayers and organizations already have it, but I think there needs to be clear communication protocols and structures in place to deal with um, those issues and making sure that you can accurately identify who's giving the advice and in what capacity. And I think if you give it some thought in advance and you can put in place a protocol or a policy internally around that, then it makes dealing with it when it does arise a lot easier. Okay, makes that makes good sense. Okay, well, uh, thank you, Clint. Um, uh, Clint Harding from Arnold Block Legler. Uh, thank you, Professor Pamela Hanrahan. Um, and uh, that has been the BLS report produced by the Business Law Section of the Law Council of Australia in association with 2SER in honour of the late Bob Bax. <laughs> <laughs>